We're going to be looking today as we continue our sermon series on making a seat at the table. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And if you need a pew Bible, there should be one close to you there, and that'll be on page 1007. 1007. Last week, um, Chris and I took Olivia, as you know, across the country with Alec Witzel following behind us in tow. And um, we arrived at Covenant College on Lookout Mountain in Georgia. And we uh, moved her into her dorm. Uh, We toured around campus because I had been on campus several times, so I knew the layout, but Kristen had no idea what it was like. So we took her around campus to show her the various things. And uh, we went to all the parent meetings, and then we had our tearful goodbyes, and we drove away. And as we drove away, one of our prayers for our daughter and for Alec and for and along with millions of other parents whose children are uh, in a new college or a new school, whatever the case may be, is that our daughter Olivia would uh, get established with good friends on that campus, that she would be part of the Covenant College community. Now, I have thought much about that this week as I've looked at this text And I'm reminded of how important it is to have a place, a community where we belong. Whether it's in college, whether it's in high school, whether it's in middle school, a new team that we're on, a a place of work that might be new, a new job situation, uh, perhaps even um, a club that we've joined, or even moving to a new neighborhood. It doesn't matter, really. If you're the type of person who never walks into a room of strangers, or whether you walk out of a room wondering who most of those strangers were, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants a place to belong. Everybody wants to be recognized, to be included, to be known, to be loved. They do. This is a great desire, and it exists because we were made to be in community by our Lord. At the same time, this can be fearful because of the fall. You realize the fall has had all sorts of ramifications. And one of those ramifications is trust and and trying to get to know people and the fear that will be rejected. All of that is mixed in there in the fall. But we as Christians have some good news. We have some incredible news. And that is, as God has called us a particular, a peculiar people, to be in community with Him and with one another where we are truly recognized, included, known, and loved. How are we to respond to this call? Or maybe the better question is, and I think and it flows out of this text for us, is is that how are we to respond toward His steadfast love of us? How do we respond in that communal way? So this morning as we read our text, we'll see what instructions He has for us. So again, looking in the Scriptures, we'll be in Hebrews 10. We can get to begin with at verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, 
through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And we ask for your great mercy to be upon us, that you would seal this word on our hearts that you would use this word in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life for your glory and grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Now this passage is set up by everything that has come before it. And the author of Hebrews has, has said, God has done great things for us by his grace. And it's even in the context here that makes the transition. His people can come to Him boldly. We are bestowed with confidence to enter into the sanctuary, into His presence by the blood of Jesus. We are enabled to live a new life, to walk in the new and living way, since we have in Christ Jesus a great high priest who has offered Himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. There are great blessings for those who believe. Even greater blessings that we have ever hoped, dare to hope for or imagine. I want you to think about all the horrible news you heard this week. I want you to think about that just for a moment. And you know, lies, deception, corruption, hush money. And honestly, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm just talking about normal everyday life. Politics, that happens all the time. But in normal everyday life, think about it. Think about the issue of the destructive storms headed toward Hawaii. Think about the, the things that you heard about uh, sexual misconduct, again, among the priests of the Catholic Church. Maybe, and we were all most likely shocked by the body of a young woman found in Iowa. Such a young and, and wonderful young woman. I also want you to think about your own heart. We not only have the news that we see in the outside world, but we have our own heart to think about. Think about the things that you have seen in it this week, where you see a potential for evil and sin. Just think about it. The words you wanted to say. The things that you did. The people that you spoke to. Maybe that are closer to you that you said things that you shouldn't have. The great news is this, that Jesus came and by His grace, He has given His life for us, that all sin, that all of that sin would be dealt with, that we would be liberated, that we would be rescued, that we would be made new. What the text says is is we have access to these great blessings by faith in Christ. And so here's the question again, how do we respond to such a great love, where we would be forgiven. How do we respond to such a great love? 
Today we're going to see the necessary response of God's people to our loving God through faith, hope, and love, and community. So let us consider, first of all, the particular responses to God's love, and then second of all, the particular setting in which to respond to God's love. So the first point that we'll look at is the particular response of God's love. So the first thing that we see here as a sub-point is in light of God's loving blessings to us, we are to draw near with a sincere heart. And we see that in, in verse 22. Since God has drawn near to us, we are called to draw near to God. This is a prominent theme in this letter. Consider three other occurrences in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4.16 Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. In Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who draws near to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So you see this in the book of Hebrews, in this letter to the people, that His desire, His great desire, is that we would draw near to God. Repenting sinners are to draw near to Him for conversion. See, He comes near to us in the Spirit, and then we respond if we are unbelievers. But what about believers? We come to Him too. We come to His throne to find all the help we need to be strengthened, to be renewed, to be forgiven, to be comforted. We come to Him for guidance. We come to Him for hope. We come to Him confident that He will reward us with all that He has for us in Jesus. That's the truth. And just as we are to draw near to God, how do we do that? What does that look like to do that? Well, the text tells us here. It makes it simple. It says we're to to be drawn to Him with true hearts in full assurance of faith. The heart here stands for the whole inner life of man. And and it's important that God's people approach Him, that they be right inwardly. It is, after all, the pure in heart that see God, said Jesus, right? And and so the question is, is in order to be made right, what does that look like? How do we have pure hearts? It is only through the mercy and grace of Christ. It's only through His mercy. It's by Him, I was, as I was confessing my sins this morning, I was thinking about all the things that I struggle with and all the issues that I have. And I was like, Lord, it would be easy here to listen to the tempter tempt me to, to have a lack of faith. To look at myself and to think, oh, what a wicked man you are. And I am. But let me look to Jesus. Let me look to Jesus, for He is the author and the perfecter of faith. He is the object of the faith. And so the Bible calls out to us, it it cries out to us, draw near to Him, draw near to Jesus. Jesus has made the way known. Jesus has provided the way. Jesus is the curtain. He is the way through to the Holy God, the Father. And so look to Him. Look to His great mercy. 
in view of all that Christ has done for us, we should approach Him with this deep sincerity, with full assurance of faith. The stress is that it is only in Christ that we can come. And it's only through His high priestly work that we have access to God in order that we can draw near. So so the cry out to us is, is this, draw near to the living God and everything look to Christ. Not only during my prayer time did I notice that, but this week again, I'm studying this passage and I'm thinking about what does it mean? You know, there are times when I could just read the Bible, and I read the Bible, and I read the Bible. I may be studying for sermon. I may be trying to read, you know, my one-year Bible list and get through that. Rick and I were talking about reading Job this morning. And, and as, I'm, as I was looking at that this week, I realized in studying this passage, hey, I've been reading your word, but I haven't been drawing near to you as I should as, a, as, as my God. And so hear the word of the Lord. Draw near to Him. He is a person. He is a real person. A God who is called out to us. And beckons us to come. So draw near to Him. Hear His word. It's a tricky thing. You have to have the word. Because that's how He reveals Himself. But at the same time, we go to the Spirit. The Spirit's drawing us. So draw near to Him. The second response that we have here before us is in verse 23. And that is to hold fast to the hope we've confessed. He tells us, hold fast to the hope we confess. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. While the first exhortation is to draw near, the second one is to hang on. You know, as I was studying this, you know what I saw in my mind? One of those cat memes. You know those cat memes. It's got that cat that's like this or like this or like that, and he's holding on for dear life on some rope or building or roof or something, and it says there, hang on, baby, or something like that. It's a cat meme. That's what I picture in my mind here is hang on, hold fast. The author wants the recipients and us to retain a firm grasp on the confession of hope. In the earlier chapter, in a earlier chapter I should say, in chapter 6 verse 19, the author has already described the hope as an anchor for the soul. So I want you to, that's a word picture we should never let go of. Hope is an anchor for the soul. It is in hope that we endure trials, we conquer temptations, we share our faith, we walk in righteousness, we seek peace with others, and we wait upon the return of the Lord. Now the reality is is that Christians throughout all of history have shared the hope of spending eternity with the Lord and all His redeemed people. Krista told me a story this week, and I'm like, that's a perfect illustration. She read it in a book. It's crazy. In 1858, the steamship Austria caught fire and sank in the Atlantic, killing 400 people. One survivor told how he and five other Christian friends stood on that ship between the fire beneath them and the water before them. And they all agreed that in the end, they would leap from the sinking ship together. 
And when the time arrived, they joined hands, looked at each other, and just before jumping into the cold waters of the Atlantic, they expressed their confidence to one another that just in a few moments, we'll be together with Jesus. Now can you imagine when four of them show up in front of Jesus and like, well, where's Fred? Well, what happened to Fred? I don't know. Poor guy's left on earth, I guess. Fred, or whoever the guy is, tells the story. But I want you to note the confidence here that they have. We are going to be in heaven together. That was their confidence as they're standing on a burning ship knowing they're going to die. We, as His people, must hold fast to our hope in this way because behind it all is a God in whom we can have full confidence. God is thoroughly to be relied upon. When He makes His promise, that promise will be kept perfectly. It may unfold differently than what we think. We may not see it as He does, but all His promises come true. Every one of them. And when he makes that promise, what's interesting is, is he's not only taking the initiative to do it, he records it for us and says, be sure that's going to happen. Now, I'll tell you what, people say a lot of things, but we all know, don't we, that hardly anybody keeps their promises. Never doubt for one moment that God does it, for he does. He always has, and he always will. So be greatly encouraged. Be greatly encouraged. This should give us strength in our known presence. What, whatever you're working through right now, and I know several of you have some significant things going on in your lives right now. This hope should give you strength for this moment in your life when you are facing such hard trials. But it should also give you hope for an unknown future. You see, Jesus said, trouble's going to come. And so there's no doubt that trouble is around the bend until He comes back. Now, if Jesus splits the sky in a few moments, we'll never have to worry about it again. But until then, trouble will come our way. Trouble will be there. And so have hope. Have hope in Him who gave Himself for you, who loves you, and who has called you to be His people. Because guess what? He is faithful. He is faithful. The third response that we have here, that we see in the text, is to think about stirring one another up. Is to think about stirring one another up. He says, let us, in verse 24, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The King James puts it this way, uh, to provoke one another to, good, to love and good deeds. The Net Bible puts, puts it a different way. Take thought of how to spur one another on to good works. Note the commandment here. And notice this, it is not to love one another, is it? It's not about loving one another. Now, the Bible is filled with that in other places. But in this particular text, what is the command? It is to uh, uh, encourage one another 
to good deeds. So we are called to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. The noun rendered spur, and you can imagine that in your, in your mind, can't you? Cowboy, horse, spur. Get it? Cowboy, horse, spur. That's what's going on here. It usually has a meaning like an irritation or an, ex, an exasperation. And to be honest with you, it's somewhat unusual to have it used in a good sense. So as we're reading this, the author should be trying to grab our attention and say, look at what I'm telling you here. I'm using a negative term for a good purpose. He is calling us to entice one another, to stimulate one another, to provoke one another to the mutual activity. It's mutual. The mutual activity of love and good deeds. He is laying out the argument that you have to give some thought to this or it won't happen. So in our prayer times, we may be praying this. This is going to be a dangerous thing to have you guys pray for one another. But you should be praying as you pray for your church and you pray for those names, you should be praying, how can I encourage that person in love and good deeds? How can I do that? Now, don't be mad when somebody does. You know? Be encouraged because they love you. Because they care for you. They're doing that. So Christians are to provoke one another to love. And that word is agape here, which is characteristic for a love that is not self-seeking. A love whose paradigm is, as one author put it, the cross. Here's the thing. It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom in order to truly do this well without being hurtful instead of being helpful. Yet, it must be stirred up. It must be aroused. It must be flammed into flame. It must be uh, nurtured and cultivated and encouraged. As Jones says, love and good works are the order of the day for each and all and to each and all. He is prompting us of the uh, resultant responsibility that we have Uh, To love one another by encouraging one another to love as Christ loves. If this is true, that we can draw near because of what Jesus has done. If it is true that we have hope because of what Jesus has done. It is also true that we have obligations to one another because of what Jesus has done. And so he tells us to care for one another by stimulating one another to love and good deeds. So let's, let's apply this particular point just with a few things, okay, as we're thinking about it. First of all, as you draw near to God, draw near to others. It, 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 the issue here is be deliberate about it. Seek to meet with those you haven't met because you may find a friend that you've never known you have before. Seek to encourage those people that you do know as the text tells you. As I studied this passage this week, it brought back a a memory of a song by Rich Mullins. I don't know if any of you have heard it, but you you know the words if, if you have. And the song's called Brother's Keeper. And this is what he says, And I will be my brother's keeper, not the one who judges him. I won't despise him for his weakness. I won't regard him for his strength. I won't take away his freedom. And I will help him learn to stand. And I, I will be my brother's keeper. And that's what we're called to here. 
to be our brother's keeper, to not be like uh, the, the, the murderers of old, but to be our brother's keeper. So the question is, is, are you your brother's keeper? Consider these words from uh, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews. And secondly here, to apply this, um, in order to do that, you need to know one another on a deeper level than just a superficial level. So in other words, it's important that you meet together in this place on Sunday mornings and that you meet with other believers on other occasions such as Bible studies, ministry opportunities, uh, youth group functions, children's gatherings, and also fellowship with a purpose. You know, I've had um, over the years in doing youth ministry, and AJ knows about this, I would have, like I had a man take me out to dinner or lunch one time and just hammer me about his son not getting involved in youth ministry. And I was like, well, you know, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, you know, I don't know. And I said, and that's the point, isn't it? I can't make your son want to get involved. And so what I'm telling you is, is that when your son shows up, when he does show up, he doesn't want to be involved. Because I've had three other families come and join and their kids are already involved. You know, and it might help if you actually brought him to church some and encouraged him to come. Because if he's not in that community, he's not going to become part of that community. Do those things make sense? And then when we do become part of the community, it's easy, especially in the churches in North Texas. I mean, I've talked to several people who go to other churches, you know, very large churches, and I ask them questions about, well, what do you think? Well, one of the things I like is I could just go in and go out. Nobody really knows me. That's not what the text says here. That's not church. I'm sorry. We've bought a bill of goods in America that is ridiculous. He has called us to know one another beyond a superficial level. And so we need to be involved in those, those, those different uh, other activities that we have. But here is where we begin that process. We have a greeting time. And I see you folks greet and it's wonderful. I can hardly let you be quiet or get you quiet. I have to sing louder each week and off key and it's terrible. When it's recorded, I hate it. <laughs> That's why we encourage connect groups. For the purpose of encouraging one another. That's why AJ so strongly encourages the youth ministry in what he does. To get together. To know each other so that we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, these are some very specific responses to God. In light of what he's done for us. And that's what it is. These responses should flow out of us because of who Jesus is. And what he's done in our hearts. But there's another thing that I want to point out here in the passage. And that's in verse 25. And that's our second really major point. And it'll be a little quicker than the first one, okay? And that is this. The second major point is the particular setting in which to respond to God's love. <clears throat> verse 25. The particular setting in which to respond to God's love. Excuse me a moment. <clears throat> I cannot clear my throat this morning. It says in verse 25, after it says to spur one another on to love and good deeds, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is interesting that the context 
where this provoking love and good deeds takes place is as we've been talking about when we assemble together as His people. This kind of enticing is a product of community activity, of belonging together. One may practice faith or hope alone. Okay, we can do that. We can practice our faith. We can practice our hope alone. But not spurring one another on to good works and and love. We can't do that alone. However, I may add that even though this not neglecting to meet together flows specifically out of the author's thought of of spurring one another on, Neither do we want to cultivate faith or hope individually. We ought to be cultivating faith together. We ought to be uh, cultivating hope together. So the author here is exhorting the original recipients of the letter and us as we receive this word from the Lord to not neglect gathering together for it appears that dropping out of the church was just an issue then as it is today. Now, here's the thing. The word translated as some is really quite general. So we don't know whom exactly he's talking about. He's just saying some in general. And though it is much debated, we truly don't know why they were leaving the church. However, we know why today. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Some people are hurt by other believers and become hardened toward the church. I I hate that, but it's a reality. Sometimes it can be our fault, but sometimes it's an an oversensitive conscience on their part. Uh, Others claim that they can worship God better alone, which, again, it goes against everything in Scripture to do that. Everything in Scripture to do that. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in communion, prayer of Jesus that we would be one, goes against it. But that's how some people think. And as a matter of fact, I read, oh, there's this guy, I read an article by him a couple weeks ago. A lot of people are following him and all this stuff, and I've read some of his, some of his other articles, and I'm like, oh my gosh, don't read this guy. Because he, he promotes this. You know, you can worship God alone. And I'm like, that's not what the Scripture says, preacher man. You need to read your Bible. Watch out <laughs> with things you read. Be careful, be discerning. But when we look at this idea of people leaving the church, almost always when people do drop out of the church, their thinking is on self. Their focus is on self. And it's not on God and it's not on others. Instead of thinking, how can I be used by God to spur others on in love? That should be our question. How can I be the one who spurs someone else on in love in this congregation? They think this, my needs aren't being met. They don't have big enough programs. They don't have the certain programs that I want. They're unfriendly and unloving. And people will begin to think that way. And and the, the onus here is you help to spur other people on to love and good deeds. There are times when you should leave a particular church, definitely. But so much of the time, it's because of how I feel, what I want, what my desires are, and not what I'm spurred on by the passage to look at. Couldn't it be that in our hearts and minds, we consider church-related gatherings as as something of a, 
uh, post-education extracurricular activity? Do we treat the gatherings uh, of the saints as something that we check off of our list as, as a function that we tolerate just because of some guilt we carry? Is church just a social club to belong to? The text makes it clear and gives later warning. And it makes it clear that His return is soon. And that is it's imminent. And, and we stand with those people as they were then, knowing that He could return at any moment. And the real thing that He wants us to see here, that all this is true. Jesus came. Jesus gave His life. Jesus resurrected from the dead. And He is waiting to return. And the author is saying, all this is true. It's all true. His return, His love, His blessings. And therefore, we are exhorted to gather with the saints in order to stir one another towards the love and the works of faith and to hope to display the glory of God. In fact, we are reminded in hearing this exhortation that we're part of a centuries-long story of the unveiling of God's redemption plan. Do you realize that it is with us, you people in this room, that their faith, the faith of our ancestors, the faith of our forefathers has come to rest? When you look back in history to Luther, when you look back in history to Calvin, when you look back in history uh, to, to Paul and to Peter and to Jesus, that faith has been passed on to you today, here and now, in this place, as God's people. And guess what? We're, in turn, called to pass the gospel and our faith on to others. And so let us be captured by the truth of this text and consider the gathering of the saints as sacred. It's a sacred act. It's a sacred assembly. It is about the assembling of worshipers in the intimate fellowship found among the family of His people, the one body whose head is Christ Jesus the Lord. This is who we are. So I want you to take your bulletin. Go ahead and take your bulletin. Look at our affirmation of faith. We're going to do this in a sermon because I want you to see it. I want you to, to understand it. I want this to, to stimulate you in the passage we've just read. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we affirm our faith, what is the church? God chooses and preserves for Himself a community elected for eternal life and unified faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out His community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. Do you see that? This is what God has called us to be. And just as He has created a place for us, where we can be together and, and to belong, to be known, uh, to be in a place to flourish in faith and hope and to encourage one another in good deeds, so do others need that place as well. 
Therefore, we need to make a seat at the table for them. A seat at the table in our hearts, first of all, by reaching out to them and connecting with them. A seat at the table by being a presence in this community as as Christ Community Church in Frisco. As people need a place to gather. God has called us to be a gathering community. A community to community, a community for community to gather people at this table with us. And so as we come to the table this morning, there is no more important table in all the world than this table. This is the Lord's table. Do you know what He does? Each week, the Lord calls His people and He says, people, come. Come, 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 come. I've got a meal prepared for you. I want you to gather in My presence. I want you to gather with Me as my people. Because I've prepared a table for you to come and sit and commune with me. God has called us to commune. Think about it. Who is the most important person in your mind that you would ever love to share a meal with? Pales in comparison to God. And He calls us every week to this. Come to my table. Come. And commune with me. You know what happens at this table? He strengthens us. He strengthens us by His blood. He strengthens us by His body broken. He strengthens us to live lives as His people for His kingdom's sake. That is the most wonderful thing in the world. He is, he is nourishing you spiritually that you would live strong and active and faithful lives. That's what He's doing here. Just as you would eat good foods to to keep your body healthy, He's giving you spiritual food to keep your soul healthy. And so He says, come. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to Me, all you who need a place to belong. You have a place at my table. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You so much for calling us to Your presence. Um, I want to thank You for making a place at the table for us. And I pray, Father, that we would be wise in thinking about how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds so that others would come to this table and be with us. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would stir in our hearts. That as we come to this table today, You would fill us spiritual with the spiritual nourishment that we need in order to live for Your kingdom and Your glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.